Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another bit of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode, I speak with philosopher Dr. Rani Lil-Anyam. Rani is a research fellow in philosophy at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. And many of you will be aware of the research project that she leads called Causation, Complexity and Evidence in Health Sciences, aka the Cause Health Project. She's also one of the leaders of the Norwegian University of Life Sciences Centre for Applied Philosophy of Science. So in this episode, Rani takes us through the Cause Health Project and one of its major outputs, the book named Rethinking Causality, Complexity and Evidence for the Unique Patient. And this is an excellent resource with contributions from philosophers and clinicians to help tackle the philosophical biases that tacitly motivate evidence-based and person-centered clinical practice. Rani helps us dip our toe into the concept of causation and the different ways it can be conceptualized and the importance of these conceptions with how we recognize evidence in relation to our clinical practice. We talk about what is a paradigm and the dominance of the scientific paradigm which underpins many of the assumptions and premises of evidence-based practice. We touch on the reliance of randomized controlled trials in generating causal evidence and the potential contribution of other methods, including qualitative research, to contribute to a better understanding of causal relationships. So this all gets pretty philosophical, and this episode might require more than one listen. This sort of philosophy is hard. I know when editing this episode and re-listening... The excellent information and philosophical concepts sunk deeper into my skull and became much more obvious. So please stick with it, it's well worth it in the end. And I cannot recommend the Cause Health book highly enough. It's a fantastic resource and can be downloaded for free from Springer or just go to the Words Master podcast for the link. Rani also has an excellent video on YouTube presenting these ideas in more detail. Again, the link is on the show notes and it's well worth watching to get a grip of these important areas. I bring you Dr. Rani Lil-Anyam. Rani, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, so Rani, maybe you could tell us or tell the listeners a bit more about you and your background. I'm a philosopher and I work at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences here. So uh, my main area is uh, philosophy of science and especially causation. And uh, so it's not primarily philosophy of medicine. Uh, I just entered into philosophy of medicine because I was really interested in causation. So um, uh, from, well, in the day-to-day, I work uh, at uh, something we have called the Center for Applied Philosophy of Science, uh, which is uh, a center where we try to engage with people outside of philosophy and to engage people in uh, discussions about uh, uh, philosophy in the way that it matters for scientists and practitioners. So that's, uh, that's like what I do normally. And so how did you get into philosophy? What was your journey into, into philosophy? Oh, I entered philosophy because I didn't enjoy anything else. And I didn't know very much about philosophy. I had a tiny bit in high school. But in Norway, everyone has to take a mandatory philosophy class before they can uh, take any other course at the university. And uh, so I took it. 
and I loved it. And I decided I'm going to be a philosopher. So then I just skipped uh, any other plans. And since then, I've been taking almost only philosophy courses. And you teach, you teach, you teach philosophy, or you teach a particular field within philosophy. What's your kind of academic work involved as, as well as research? So actually, now I teach mainly that introduction course. And then I teach some research-based uh, courses, uh, but uh, we change them along with our research. So um, I'm a researcher, which means that research is uh, it's a great part of my job. But when I teach, uh, yeah, it's uh, mainly philosophers to non-philosophers. So it's mainly philosophy to non-philosophers. And so these are healthcare students or or. or, or- who are you teaching to? Well, when we teach this introductory course in philosophy, we teach it to any student at the university. So it means that uh, if they're studying biology or chemistry or economics, they still have to know some philosophy. Uh, So many of them are not very motivated at all. And one thing I really like about the job is to convince them and explain to them why philosophy is actually relevant for them, whatever they're going to study. And that's nationwide? That's across Norway? This is what universities are doing or just your institution? No, it's across Norway. Uh, I think it originally came from uh, Sweden and Denmark had it too, but I don't think they have it anymore. It's called Examen Philosophicum. And it actually used to be a full semester study and now it's uh, a third of a semester. So it's still quite a lot. But what a great start. I mean, I'm sure many students, if you're studying biology or kind of robots, you may not be that excited about doing philosophy. But like you said, I'm sure they take something from it, even if they're not entirely convinced that it's, it's, you know, it's for them. It's fairly easy to engage students in uh, ethics, for instance. So there is a history of philosophy part, it's an ethics part, and then it's a philosophy of science part. So, of course, my passion is the philosophy of science part. So I also tailor the history of philosophy a bit uh, towards uh, the philosophy of science so that when we talk about Plato, we talk about how Plato has influenced scientific approaches today, for instance, and the way we think about what is science. So I try to show that uh, all the disciplinary uh, traditions we have today, they come from a philosophical uh, approach that was actually very, very uh, long time ago. And so you said that you're often teaching philosophy to non-philosophers, and we talked before about you teaching to uh, medics or healthcare professionals. And we're going to get onto the onto cause health because that's the big kind of project by which you're engaging with medics and health the health sciences in relation to philosophy. So we'll, we'll get into that. Maybe you could start by telling or saying something about the importance of philosophy to clinical practice or clinical healthcare practice and what some of those linkages are and some of those connections. Because probably most healthcare professionals are kind of immersed in the biological sciences and a certain type of evidence around effectiveness and trials and testing interventions, anatomy, physiology, that sort of knowledge and the application of that. So maybe say something about why philosophy matters to clinicians. Well, I didn't know that philosophy mattered to clinicians before I started the Core Health project. It was actually quite a big surprise because um, I just thought, well, 
I worked on causation in science in general. And we looked at uh, certain problems in uh, understanding causation within physics, within biology, the social sciences, psychology, you know, and the... And we had this uh, conference at the first one. I mean, that was even the first year uh, going back to 2011. And we had five talks and they were on causation in medicine within the biology conference. And it really struck me that if we have all these separate problems in physics, biology, psychology, and social sciences, then of course... If you talk about a person in medicine, there's no way to leave out any of these levels because you have to think of them all. And and um, and uh, I got sucked into it because of the medically unexplained symptoms uh, that I had never heard of before, which was in one of the talks. And uh, and the idea that you could have a causal explanation in the individual case where you can understand why someone had back pain, for instance. But there wasn't a general uh, causal understanding for one physiological cause that you could call evidence that was backed up statistically. And then um, Roger Carey, he was talking about this uh, randomized controlled trials and uh, and how the way we think about causal evidence is actually defined in terms of uh, whether or not you have uh, a difference making in a statistical level uh, that is uh, that can be used so so i was i was very surprised by just these things so we started out by saying that well causation when you when it comes to medically unexplained symptoms which are things like low back pain chronic fatigue fibromyalgia you know uh, you you have all these things where you have a wide individual variation and huge complexity where the mental, physical cannot be distinguished. You know, so this was the starting point. And uh, and we made the project from that starting point. How do you get causal evidence in cases of huge individual uh, variation and large complexity? And what I didn't know was that, uh, first of all, physiotherapists, they are very interested in medically unexplained symptoms because they deal with pain. And I thought physiotherapy was really reductionist, you know, only thinking about physical causes. While I thought many of these medically unexplained symptoms is like, yeah, there's a lot of uh, contextual things going on there with the patient and their situation and their expectations and all of these things. And I thought... Hmm. So they think that this is important. Uh, so why do they think that? Because I thought that we would actually talk more to the public health people uh, because of evidence in general and evidence base uh, in medicine. But of course, uh, the philosophical framework that we had as our starting point, which was the well, medical uniqueness, uh, variation and complexity, it, it seemed to really fit much better with the clinic. <laughs> While the public health is actually more stuck in the framework that we were trying to get away from, which was the more uh, empiricist uh, statistical approach. So so I didn't know anything about this. So so I got sucked into it. And the more clinicians I started to talk to, uh, the more I learned 
uh, about how this uh, related. So it's actually not me telling clinicians how it relates. It's It's been clinicians all the time telling us, like, this is why it matters. This is our experience. This is what we're told to do. This is yeah. what we think we should have done, you know? But they they would come to you with questions and problems and experiences from their practice, right? And is it the case that you would you'd be able to give them some insight using your philosophical kind of frameworks that you had? Because my experience that clinicians are aware of the challenges such as medically unexplained symptoms or low back pain and the challenge of applying kind of population-based evidence to the individual person, but perhaps they didn't possess the the knowledge or skills and philosophy to, to begin to shape that as a, as a question or a problem? Is, it, as far as I know, there aren't, there, there aren't many physiotherapy academics or who are also versed in philosophy. I mean, they, these are quite two different disciplines. You've obviously got people like Roger and Matthew Lowe, but but it would seem to me that the two kind of coming together would would be really productive, and obviously it was. Yeah, I think uh, because we had uh, Roger Carey and Matt Lowe, uh, that really opened up a network for us because we had a lot of academic um, uh, researchers who were, I mean, a bit like Roger, so uh, so they have a lot of clinical uh, experience, but they first of all um, they teach at the university. Um, so what was really nice about having uh, them translating some of the ideas early on in the project meant that we already had outlets where we got to talk to the relevant uh, people because I mean you cannot just call up. Uh, international society for whatever, whatever clinicians and ask it, do you want to hear me talk about philosophy for you? And then we see if you get excited or not. I mean, you have to, you have to get the foot in on the inside. And I think a lot of the philosophers of medicine working on exactly what we work on causation in medicine, I think they are a bit jealous that we have this, you know, network of uh, clinicians engaging in with our ideas because it's very hard to get outside of that academic bubble. Um, and it is all about the network. And I think also Twitter really helped. I, I remember one of the course health events, conferences that I went to, the guideline challenge. And, and it's the same with the book, right? That you've got this real contribution by philosopher academics and clinicians and the conference was the same where there was this wonderful collaboration between academics and and clinicians you know, tr- you know kind of grappling with some of these these issues yeah we we actually shaped the project um, to fit the people who were interested so when we noticed that there was this big interest among um, uh, physiotherapists for instance we had a separate event in nottingham uh, where physio meets cause health, you know, and uh, I think we had hundred people there, uh, and then we also had a, a mix of clinicians and philosophers uh, talking, and uh, it was really useful. So even though many people said that, yeah, it is, you know, some of the philosophy is technical and it's uh, it's a bit difficult. It it starts off thinking that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. And I think uh, one of the feedback we also got is that uh, people say that they wish they had had some philosophy of science in their education because it's really useful. It opens up a door to a completely different way of of thinking and reflection that is actually relevant for their day-to-day practice. 
Yeah, and perhaps you can say more more about the the relationship between philosophy and practice and the thought has been different, right? But they're kind of not. I mean, so I, I presume that they're not, that philosophy or practice rather is embedded in philosophy. So when you're doing medicine or doing physiotherapy, philosophy will come into that practice, whether or not you're aware of it or, or you know, what what is the relationship between philosophy and practice? I would think that most of the philosophy that you get into your practice comes through your education. <laughs> so we work on something we called philosophical bias in science. And the idea is that when you, when you teach someone theories about how the world is, like, okay, this is the body. <laughs> this is how it works. These are the important things to look for. These are the methods where we get evidence for whether things work in this or that way. This is what you're supposed to do based on that evidence. You know, if you're going to consider the scientific evidence and be a scientifically informed uh, clinician, then of course you have to look at all this research being done. So it's not only about, okay, how do you talk to the person in front of you? How do you do these and these exercises uh, with them? And, you know, that's not, that's not all you learn. You learn a whole bunch of scientific framework underlying it. And it might be that um, a lot of the evidence that you have to consider that you have never been asked what you think of the way that this evidence was generated. And this is because when you enter any kind of discipline, the methods, they are just taken for granted. And the same with the theories. So it is a bit like God-given information. I mean, if, if, you, don't, if you don't accept those uh, premises, you kind of have nothing to do in the field. <laughs> because if if the way that this discipline works is to take these theories and apply these methods and generate evidence based on that type of knowledge then of course if you do it any other way it's unscientific i mean it's the wrong way to do it so what i see a lot is that if people are not happy with the framework that they enter. It's very hard to change it from within, and especially if you're just a student. So you kind of first have to become an expert, and then people start listening to you because you did it the way you were told. And then maybe you say later, by the way, I think something needs to change. And some people do that. They do a lot of interesting work after they retired, for instance, or when they're really senior and everyone listens to them. But it's really hard to do this in the beginning. And what you call this kind of framework is a scientific paradigm. And I don't know if uh, clinicians in general are familiar with the term paradigm, but uh, my students are not. <laughs> yeah, it would be great if you could offer a, yeah. a working definition. Yeah, so a paradigm is something that Thomas Kuhn, who was a historian of science, it was a term that he came up with. And he said, science always works within a paradigm. And this paradigm is what defines the theories, the methods, the research questions, what counts as a result, what counts as an interesting uh, problem to care about at all, you know, what counts as data, who are the authorities in the field, who should we listen to, who are the bullshitters, you know, uh, which journals do you publish in, which journals should you just stay away from? I mean, all of this is part of the paradigm. 
And so the paradigm is what defines your science. And you could have a, a paradigm, you can have a very wide understanding of a paradigm and say that all of the things that we do uh, in the world today is part of almost the same scientific paradigm because we have similar methods or similar approaches. Uh, almost no one wants to deny insights uh, from physics, uh, you know, although there are a lot of uh, discussions within. It's like some basic ideas that we never challenge. And Kuhn, he says that, when we work in these paradigms, and if we want a career, <laughs> you better stick to it and don't rebel. And uh, he says that when you do science within a paradigm, you do what he calls normal science. And it's a bit like being religious. You have a religious faith in the authorities and the theories and the methods of your paradigm. And anyone who tries to challenge them, they are already like defined out uh, <laughs> of the system. I think this is something we see all the time in scientific debates. I mean, if you go into Twitter and you see uh, uh, people are having so-called critical discussions, you know, it's always critical in the sense that if you oppose what everyone says or the textbook says or the authority says, then you're a bullshitter and you don't listen to science. You know, so it, you always have the upper hand. And uh, I think this is, uh, this is something I really want to challenge because I think all of the paradigms we have, all of the authorities, all of the theories, methods, whatever we have, they came to be because someone rebelled. Someone said, this isn't good enough. I don't believe this. You know, I want to challenge what everyone is accepting, whether it was, you know, uh, the the geocentric uh, worldview or uh, the Bible or, you know, it, whatever, whatever was, you know, the biggest truth at the times. And is it, is it your experience or, or your sense that healthcare practitioners are familiar with the scientific paradigm? I mean, that's quite a dominant worldview, isn't it? it it's science, at least in, in much of healthcare education in the UK, it still dominates. And so, the, the fact that so that sort of belief system if you like is you know whether or not practitioners can articulate it clearly or are, uh, are kind of truly aware of, of some of those beliefs we tend to be quite comfortable with the scientific paradigm but some of these other paradigms and i i guess i'm thinking about you know the, the limited philosophical um the kind of learning i had for my phd we talked about relativism and realism and subjectivism and objectivism those sorts of terms where they will whether it alternative or competing ways of looking at the world and thinking about knowledge and truth and reality that that for me when i um did a little bit of philosophy in in in, in that time just being aware that there were differences there were different paradigms and there wasn't this single position that you, you know that there are different places to stand and see things differently that in itself as a clinician was quite helpful I mean, just that fact if you like or just that knowledge that there were different ways of looking at things it gave me an insight into my own position and my own relationship with patients and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. i think that uh so you might uh think normally that uh okay you have a for instance a scientific paradigm and then you have some other paradigm that we got rid of but what kuhn is saying which you may or may not agree with is that when you have two different paradigms, you cannot really compare them because uh, there are completely different questions that matter. 
And I think uh, you, you could also look at it in a bit more micro way. It doesn't have to be huge paradigms. It could be also smaller paradigm, like the evidence-based paradigm. I mean, the evidence-based paradigm and the person-centered paradigm. You, you could call them different paradigms because they consider a bit different things. So, uh, but you could also you could also say in a way they belong to the same paradigm because mm. it's not like they have different theories of how the body works for instance or maybe they have slightly different but i mean it doesn't matter so much but it's not like a big uh scientific revolution going from one to the other where all these methods and and theories and authorities change but it's still a huge difference in the focus and maybe even the type of questions and what we really like to do, so I work with Elena Rocca and uh, I also work with um, uh, Fredrik Andersen. And when we uh, started talking about this philosophical bias in science, we wanted to show how um, there are some deep philosophical issues and assumptions that are underlying theory and method. So for instance, in theory, you could say the dualism, that the, you have the body and mind separated. I mean, it's a very old idea from 1500, uh, you know, or 1500, and, and why haven't why haven't we got rid of it? You know, why people keep saying, oh, you know, you have to think of the whole person, you have to think that these influence each other, but it doesn't really change in practice because the methods they haven't changed. The methods they force you. Even if you have the biopsychosocial model, it still forces you, if you want to look for causation, for instance, to separate one by one cause. So you look at the mental cause and you isolate it from everything else. And then you see, does it make a difference? You know, then you look at the social and the biological cause, and then you add them all together. You know, so so this kind of adding the mental and the physical. And then think that now you have a whole list approach. I mean, that doesn't really work. And this is why some people also say that we really, in in our work, in the latest book that we wrote, uh, Rethinking Causality, Complexity and Evidence for the Unique Patient, that we actually also challenge what person-centered approaches is supposed to be. Because many people think that as long as they have the biopsychosocial, they are already a bit more holist, a bit more, you know, anti-dualist. Um, but it doesn't work as long as methodology forces this kind of fragmentation or uh, separation and addition <laughs> of all the different types of evidence that has to be done one by one. And when you say, when you talk about methods and methodology, you you meaning kind of clinical methods or research methods? Research methods. Yeah. yeah, the research methods that this evidence uh, is produced by, you know, so if you look at randomized control trials, for instance, it is mainly one intervention that you can test. If you test three things at the same time, you always come back to the problem that, oh, but we don't know which, we don't know which made the difference. Maybe this was just uh, unimportant. Maybe this is, you know, so, and that's the same for all type of evidence so every, everyone who says you know if you work in social science and you say yeah complexity we need to study complexity 
if you want to study how something influences something else and you want to say it's complex and you want to have many things influencing something, how do you do it with accepted research methodology? You have to start checking one by one. Yeah. And then it's like, well, what something does in isolation is not at all what it does in combination. <laughs> well, let's get to that. So, so one of the slogans of course health is N equals one. And, and I think as I, as I mentioned before, it's the challenge or the problem of applying kind of generalized data from kind of big populations to the individual person. There we go. One size doesn't fit all, that's the other one. And so maybe, maybe say something about that in, in, in terms of methods. You know, what is the problem of applying evidence from a large population to the individual person? Why, you know, what's wrong with generalizing and saying, well, well, this intervention worked on, you know, this kind of average person. Therefore, I've got an average person in front of me in my clinical work. I'm going to do that intervention. Why is that, why is that not a good way of practicing? Well, so now we need to start talking about philosophy. Uh, because if you want to say that um, knowledge that you get statistically can be used in an individual case by averaging out, uh, then uh, you will have to have a certain assumption about what you have in front of you. So, for instance, when we talk about probabilities, so you might uh, you might have two different interventions, and you say, well, this intervention worked for thirty. 30% of your people. <laughs> and this intervention only worked for five. So obviously we choose the one that is for 30% because most likely then this will work for you. More likely than the 5% because more likely you are in the 30% than in the 5%. Well, in reality, more likely you're in the percentage where it didn't work. But um, so you could have an idea where, well, when I talk about the probability of how whether or not this intervention is going to be effective for you based on the knowledge that I have. The question is always that, okay, are you assuming that when it worked, it worked on a subgroup where they all had something that was the same, which made it work for them. And when it didn't work, it was something about that group that made it not work for them. You know, so that if only you knew what it was that made it work, you could have had a subgroup where 100% got an effect from the treatment. Mm. That would be the dream. And, and, and this is what you could do with, um, uh, with that kind of probability. Then you would say, if it works causally, then it works always under these conditions, which I wish you had. Yeah. And... When you have that assumption, then we say that you have a deterministic understanding of causation, which means that either it works or it doesn't. So it depends on whether the conditions are already right. Then when you say, I don't know, but it's 30% sure, then it's a lack of knowledge that makes you talk in probabilities. Because if you knew more, if you knew everything, if you were God, you would have known whether this would work or not for that person, you know? because you know everything that is relevant. So that means that a probabilistic claim is only necessary when you don't have complete knowledge. Okay, another way to see it is to say that everyone 
who gets the treatment has a 30% chance of it working. And the 30% chance that you have of this working, I get from statistics. Of course, I need the best possible statistics. If only I could check everyone, I would find out whether it was 30 or 32 or 29. And then you average out. And this is a frequentist uh, understanding of probability where you say that if I want to know the probability of something, I test it and I start counting. So for instance, I look at the coin and I think, how probable is it that this coin is going to land heads or tails? Okay. In the first understanding of probability, you would flip it and you would think God knows already whether he's going to land heads or tails because, you know, he has all the information. So if I was God, I didn't need probability, but since I'm not God, okay, my prior knowledge tells me that it's 50-50. But again, that's based on statistics. If you're a frequentist, you're going to say, okay, what we did, we flipped this coin so many times and we counted a lot. And what we found was that fairly half of the time, uh, it landed heads and then tails. And a lot of uh, these chancy ideas come a bit from this, this way of doing it, which is like in games. So you have a dice, it has six sides, you know. So it so you can you can start throwing the dice and, and it will generate you the probabilities. This is an extremely empiricist approach. You only believe what you have evidence of. There's no way or no reason or no rationality behind speculating over the probabilities before you checked it. So it's a bit like sitting there with a the person saying, yeah, it's a 50-50 chance that this is going to work for you, but, um, you know, I'm just, who knows? Uh, but either it works or it doesn't, you know? And it's a bit, you just guess. But for a frequentist, yeah, you don't do that. You test, you check, you check the numbers, and then you have your evidence. The evidence itself, I mean, it's a bit uh, impossible to argue against because if it works... Yeah it, yeah, it might be true that I had a 30% chance. If it doesn't work, it might also be true, you know. So it's not like even if people said it's a one in a million chance that you will get this side effect from this treatment and you get it. I mean, it was still not false what they said. There's always this tiny chance. It was you, sorry. <laughs> so the idea that we come from, which is the dispositionalist idea, talks about these dispositional properties. So what are the properties of me and the properties of the treatment, for instance, and that make us interact in a certain way. So the drug, yeah, it has a certain mechanism of treatment, for instance. It is supposed to interact with the body in this and this way, under normal conditions. So if you have a healthy body where it works like this and this, you should get this outcome. But, of course, we also know that if there's something with you or something about you that is special, that is particularly vulnerable, to this kind of treatment, or you lack the kind of receptor that you need to interact with it, you're not going to get it. And this is knowledge that is much more theoretical. You cannot just count how often people get or don't get the outcome. You have to actually speculate theoretically based on everything you learned in school <laughs> and by seeing other people, like why you have a chance that is smaller or bigger uh, of getting this effect or this side effect. And, and so if you look at the coin, if you want to know what is the chance with landing heads or tail, you will study the coin. You will study the, the context. I mean, are you in, uh, are you in space or are you in, uh, <laughs> in a normal place with the uh, oxygen? 
yeah, is it going to land on a on a flat surface or is it going to land in uh, in water or mud? I mean, or uh, you know, so so this is going to to decide how the coin is going to behave as well. And um, when you say properties, just to kind of clear that up, and you said that there are properties to both the intervention and the the person, if you like. What are we referring to? What what are the properties of what practically what are they? Is it things like age, sex, genetics? Is that what we're talking about? Uh, so uh, very often we would try to categorize categorize these properties into like subgroups that you could generate statistically, of course. But now we work uh, together with Uppsala Monitoring Center for Drug Safety, and they work on side effects from uh, medical interventions and particularly drugs. And there you have the problem that very often these side effects can be extremely rare. Uh, and maybe you have three people on a global basis that reports this side effect, or maybe even one. Uh, and then it can be something very special about that person, you know, uh, maybe they have a, an illness, maybe they use a very, um, a, a very rare combination of drugs that interacted, um, And then the problem is if they were going to use statistical methods to find out whether the drug could possibly have caused the side effect or not, uh, they don't have that kind of, they don't have that kind of evidence. So, so what do they do? And, uh, so here, what we, what we can see is that there's a lot to be learned from marginal cases and outliers, people who are not like everyone else. And, what happens in these large populations is that these people are often taken out of the studies because they're not like everyone else. You want someone who is a bit average. Uh, I was, for instance, looking at this um, uh, ad for uh, the flu vaccine. You could, uh, are you young and healthy? Uh, join us for uh, testing the new flu vaccine. And you know that the people who take the flu vaccine are not the young and healthy. It's like the oldest and the sickest people we have. <laughs> so uh, you see, if if they had tested it on the old and the sick, you get ethical issues. You cannot do it because more likely they will interact uh, and they are more vulnerable to side effects. But uh, so the same thing goes for uh, for a lot of vulnerable groups. So for instance, pregnant women, you don't want to do anything to harm. But uh, first, uh, I mean, they didn't even used to know that when you were pregnant, the drugs could interact with, uh, with the baby, you know, in the womb. So they learned that because of the side effects of thalidomide where suddenly children were born with an extremely rare condition, namely without limbs. And because this was such a rare side effect, it was easier for them to find out what was uh, common for, for these children, that their mother had been on this drug in early pregnancy, which was actually used for morning sickness. It wasn't for morning sickness, but it was, it was sold for that. So even if it wasn't that many people who got this side effect, you could still learn something very general that, okay, pregnant women and the, the unborn babies are vulnerable to 
drug interventions. They can actually interact. And that's a general causal mechanism that we have needed ever since. And and you can, um, so for instance, now we, one of the clinicians uh, that we work with, she works, she's a logoped. How do you say that in English? So works with speech. A speech and language therapist? Okay. Maybe that's what it's called in uh, in English, yeah. So uh, we have a collaborator who is uh, working on these uh, speech and language therapists, and she works with stroke patients. And she says stroke patients, for instance, are often vulnerable uh, to medical interventions. They get a lot of side effects that are often cognitive, and uh, which is maybe not the most common way to get side effects from drugs, but because they have this vulnerability that they had this stroke already, this is a more uh, natural response for them. And you might think, well, it's not so surprising mechanistically. So yeah, what we uh, what we say when we talk about causal evidence, because causal evidence is what you're supposed to use when you decide whether a medicine or an intervention in general is going to be safe and effective for a person. We say that that causal evidence must come also from the person who's getting it, but you need a lot of theoretical knowledge about how your intervention actually works. Because if all you do is to do something that usually has a certain effect, but you don't know what else it does, then you're in not you're not in a very good state to predict whether it could harm someone. So the traditional evidence-based hierarchy of evidence or knowledge where you've got randomized control trials that kind of sit at the top with meta-analyses, they're thought to have less bias, more objective, you know, better evidence. And in the kind of the lower leagues of evidence or knowledge, you've got expert opinion and sometimes qualitative research is shoved in there too. And the, the presumption is that randomized controlled trials are the best methods we have for looking at those cause and effect relationships. But you're arguing that they're, they're, they're not, or, or they're not by themselves. Well, think that you wanted to learn about gravity. So you work in physics and you want to arrive at the theory of gravitational attraction. Um, let's say you start counting how often when you drop a pen, it will fall to the ground, for instance. Is that going to get you closer to the theory? I would say no. It will tell you how often things fall. It might even tell you some conditions under which it doesn't fall. (laughs) But it's never going to give you the theory how many times something happens under the same or similar conditions is not going to get you new causal knowledge, I would say, when you just repeat the same under some kind of artificial conditions. So if you have no... Yes, you might even uh, try to do it in a more scientific way and say, okay, there's no air resistance, you know, there's no interference, and now I'm going to check how often they fall, and it always falls. But... (laughs) Uh, What have you learned? What have you learned about Mm. causation? I would say you learn very little. Yeah, you learn what to expect. 
but you don't learn what to expect under other conditions. You don't have any theoretical or knowledge framework to explain when you don't get the predicted result. So if all you do is like check how often you get the same from the same, um, you're in trouble when you don't get that outcome. If you started studying the situations in more detail where you didn't get the expected outcome, you might find out which contextual factors interfere with the process. And that might give you an indication of new causal knowledge to investigate. So, ooh, so friction, it has something to do whether you have, uh, you know, um, whether you are uh, on Earth uh, or on the moon seems to <laughs> be a difference. You know, it's just um, if you want to push the knowledge that you have, you might say that look at marginal and outlier cases, even if they are very few, instead of ruling them out and say they are not relevant because most of the times what we thought hap would happen, happened. But if you want to push causal knowledge and try to figure out how things are connected, then you need to see whether something changes when you do something else. So I want to spend time on the book, but I also want to ask on that point that in, in one of the recommendations at the end of the book is you were going to make a, a, a case for more qualitative research. That, that was one of the, the kind of calls. And I just wondered where patients or participants kind of narratives and experiences and those qualitative findings what do they have to offer when trying to understand causation? Because the traditional view of, of qual research is that it really didn't have, doesn't have much to say about cause and effect. It can't make those sorts of claims. It can just you know, provide insights and rich descriptions of, of experiences and social processes. But it seems like that the recommendation in the book suggests that qualitative research does have some contribution to make to understanding those causal relationships. Yeah, it's related to what I said about uh, gravitation, because science didn't used to be that based on statistics. It used to be based on theory development. If you say how we understand the body, for instance, is something that is theoretical. It's not just about counting how often things happen. It's about understanding why it happens like it and how it happens and under which conditions and what things would affect uh, whether it would happen in this or that way. And there's no way that you can get this kind of information through doing separate quantitative studies because there you can only look at one, maybe two factors and look at one effect. And so if you want to see how things are related and how things connect and what things prevents or influences or something to give you the outcome, then you have to look at these interactions. And how do you do that? Well, you have to start with a complex situation. So for instance, if you work in the lab, you're going to try to isolate all of the interfering factors. So for instance, if you work in mice uh, models, you will try to, you don't want them to have a strong immune system that's going to <laughs> defend themselves against the interventions that you're, uh, that you're pushing. And it's the same with, uh, it's, it's a problem I heard with uh, using women in studies because we have all these hormones that interact with so many things. So it's best to use like the, the standard average normal male. Uh, but then of course, what is the relevance of the, 
the results that you get from these studies under these isolated uh, contexts on the context of application. So, so what we're saying is instead of trying to figure out this kind of ideal or normal or average conditions, our knowledge should come from a huge variety of contexts that are studied in more detail. So as you say, qualitative research is usually thought not to have anything to do with uh, causation, but it depends also on how we define qualitative research, because you could say that qualitative research is about the qualities of things, how they work. It's about having a lot of knowledge and information about the particular case instead of in quantity where you have very little information about the particular case, but you have lots of repetitions. So I think this, uh, I think this qualitative research here, today it's a lot of phenomenology and it's a lot of these um, uh, life experiences of people. And what we meet then is that a lot of our clinicians, they are maybe uh, into the phenomenology because these are the issues they want to know about. But at the same time, it's not causal or it's not allowed to be causal because causation has been defined as something that makes a difference statistically. Mm. But the question is, is this causation itself or is it the way that we have chosen to define causation? Because really it's just one of the many philosophical theories of causation. And it is a difference between what the phenomenon actually is and what you define or stipulate it to be. So if you really care about how things relate and what affects or influences something, well, you don't necessarily get that by looking at the statistical difference maker. Unless causation itself is nothing but a statistical difference maker. So we have to think whether we have stipulated something or found the true nature of it. And that's the difference between ontology and epistemology, because you can say, well, the phenomenon of causation, what causes really are, that's something that we might think is a, is a phenomenon in the world, is something that happens in the world and we want to know about it. But how we get to know about it, what we recognize as symptoms of causation, for instance, like correlations plus difference making uh, plus some kind of uh, uh, influence, for instance, where you manipulate and you get something else. I mean, those are ways to identify it through a test, for instance, or through a definition. And the way we think about causation today comes from this idea, which is epistemological, not ontological. It's not about speculating about what causation could be. It's about saying, what can we possibly observe about causation? And David Hume, in 1739, he published a book, Treatise of Human Nature, where he said, well, I look at the billiard ball table. I see uh, I, um, I hit the ball, it rolls, it hits another ball, and that ball starts rolling. And I think, well, this was cause and effect. But what do I really see? Well, I see every time I do the same, the same thing happens. So it's a perfect correlation, at least under the same circumstances. And I see that the cause happens before the effect, and I see that they meet in time and space. 
But I don't see that there is a further connection. I just think there is a connection that goes beyond this. I don't see that there's a law or a necessity or any push. I just see on the surface that this happens. So it's a bit like pattern recognition. You look for patterns and he says, this is what we do. As humans, we always look for patterns, but these patterns might be accidental. They might have nothing to do with what we predict happen in the future. So you can sit on a lot of uh, weird correlations and it's not causation. And this has really shaped the debate. Is it correlation? Is it causation? You know, well, the stronger, the stronger correlation you have, the better evidence you have of causation. And he also says, of course, if you had a perfect data set where you could test all the billiard ball uh, <laughs> hits in the world, you know, past, present and future, you would know. Because if it always happened, then you would know it was causation. But we don't have that. So what do we do? We have as much as much evidence as we possibly can. So as many repetitions as we can. And what we say is that, well, if, if causation is about how properties interact, how things interact in a particular circumstance, it may give you something that happens most of the time. It may give you something that hardly ever happens, or it may give you something that has never happened, <laughs> you know? So whether how strong your correlation is wouldn't define causation. You can have a very strong correlation, but if there is no property or property interaction where one thing is actually influencing something else and being part of the production of the effect, then there's no causation going on because that causation has to be an actual interaction. And Hume says, how would you know that you wouldn't be able to observe it? But for instance, when we talk about um, uh, birth control pills, giving thrombosis, it's in a very small minority. I mean, I heard some numbers first, it was one in a thousand, then it was like one in 15,000. We still say it's causation. We say it's causation because we understand the causal mechanisms, not because it's like close to a perfect correlation. So why is it that some of these extremely small <laughs> correlation where something hardly ever happens counts as causation, but then some correlations that are really strong are not thought of as causation, such as, you know, the correlation between the margarine consumption in Maine and the divorce rate in the US or vice yeah. versa, you know, which is 99.97%. Uh, why is that not causation? Well, there's nothing in yeah. the margarine and the divorce <laughs> that is linked in any plausible way. But how is that explained, that correlation? Or how is it explained away? Because obviously there isn't a link. Is it? Is it just pure coincidence or why is it that the case of the divorce rate and margarine consumption are they correlate with each other what's the no it's no explanation what you do is that you play with uh, you play with uh, data so you you just run a program that finds the curves that look exactly identical and then you say "Ooh, perfect correlation and it's funny but everyone knows that uh, yeah if you were to <laughs> i mean if it was a plausible one you would say, look, here's the evidence. Yeah, yeah. But because you don't think it's plausible, it's like, haha, this is really silly. Uh, why would we ever think this? So that's the danger, actually. It is the danger that if you believe something and you get the statistical evidence, 
then you have really good reasons to believe it. But if you don't believe it, you can just dismiss it and say, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but it's, so it's, is, it, is it possible there is some meaningful, there is some meaning between those two, between that correlation? It might be the case. I mean, of course it's ridiculous, right? On the face of it, there is no relationship between margarine consumption and divorce mm. rate, correct? So we just dismiss it and say, well, that's just, you know, nonsense. But there might be. I mean, there might be. There might be something's hitherto unexplored. Yeah. So, so one thing that people have said is that it's great to have these statistical correlations because they give you indications of causal uh, hypothesis that we need to test. So then you could do an RCT and see maybe you know if you thought it was worth it. Of course, it's going to be quite expensive um, to test, but you could start with theoretical speculations. So one one example is, for instance, uh, there was this claim uh, that married men live longer, you know, and you could maybe speculate that, well, maybe it's because when you live together with someone in a loving relationship, you know, and you have... Uh, you know, you eat together and you have um, you have a social contact. You, you don't have to be alone or isolated. Uh, men get fed by these women who care about diet and stuff. You know, you can have all these uh, ideas of what are the causal mechanisms um, of why married men live longer. And you could also say the other, the other side, if you're like evolutionary psychologist, you could say, well, the men who are the most fit are picked by the women for marriage. So that's why they're married because they're going to live longer. They're really healthy. They're really fit, you know? And so those are two opposite uh, causal claims. So one goes one way, the other goes the other way. But without such a speculation, without a theory, you would say that there's no reason at all to ask people who are suddenly ill, for instance, to get married. So do you live with someone? Are you married? You're not married? Okay, you should go and sign those papers now. Mm. <laughs> but if all you knew was that married men live longer, then that would be a really sensible intervention. But if you understand what it is about the marriage that make people, men live longer, then you would maybe think, oh, okay, so you argue all the time. And he, you know, uh, she beats you and, uh, okay, you eat really unhealthy since you met her. No, no, you should get divorced. <laughs> get out of there. This is going to save you. Uh, you. You wouldn't think that it was the name on the piece of paper that would help. You, you would think which particular parts of it is it that actually is part of the production of the better health, so you live longer. Getting married to, to, to help physical health. I, I, I see a public health slogan, or or get divorced and get healthy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you're in a if you're in a very bad relationship, I would say yeah, that uh, that could be really good. But I have also heard rumors that divorce and moving houses are one of the top uh, uh, strains on someone's health. So. <laughs> Which you probably avoid it. I, I want to spend time just talking about the book because it's such a wonderful resource, and and maybe you can introduce the book kind of formally. I know you mentioned the title, and obviously I'll link it. Uh, um, I'll link it in the show notes so people can access it and download it. I know that it's a it's a free download, which is 
brilliant, marvellous. But maybe introduce the book and, and say something about the the motivation behind it and who the audience is, really. Yeah, so we wrote this uh, book because we wanted the Cause Health Project to have an output uh, that was for the most uh, engaged <laughs> audience for the project. Um, we saw that uh, the clinicians were the ones who engaged most with the project, and we thought, why don't we make a resource particularly for them? Not just causation in medicine or causation in health sciences, but something where people can actually see why uh, thinking about causation matters for the clinic. And we thought we're going to take uh, all of the things we did on the project and gather exactly that type of information that was relevant. And we're going to use examples uh, to show exactly how mm. this is relevant for the clinic. And uh, so we ended up writing um, the first uh, half is a philosophical part. And it's written uh, by... Uh, Samantha Copeland, Eliana Rocca, and myself, who were um, on the original Cause Health team here at Norwegian University of Life Sciences. And then to make sure that the clinicians actually <laughs> understood how it links to practice, we took the second part where we had different clinicians and the patient who explained how they interpret the philosophical framework to be relevant. So, for instance, um, we have Matthew Lowe, who uses this framework when he talks to patients. So he uses the understanding of causation to communicate with his patients about the complexity of their illness or their problem. And also to say how, even if you cannot do something about your knee or your back or your shoulder, there are all these other costly relevant factors that you may be able to change or influence. And uh, Dina Price, she's one of his previous patients, and she explains how learning about this philosophical framework was really helpful for her to understand her own pain. And she would use this, and she has even developed the philosophy and the model a bit, to fit her way of dealing with her daily situation and see how can I go about changing something in my life to reduce the pain or cope better with the pain. So I thought that was a really interesting starting point. So they are very early in the, in the second part of the book. But then we also have a psychologist, uh, so uh, Tobias Linsta. And he's very interested in the philosophical framework because of uh, how it can affect psychotherapy practice and psychotherapy theory. So he is really pushing that line and he's talking to people in psychology. So, so his chapter, although it, it might be read by people from other disciplines, it speaks particularly to a group that we haven't been able to communicate that much with during the project. We have some general practitioners and uh, psychotherapists also who, who write, who write from different perspectives. But I think it really works as a whole. I wouldn't like people to just read the chapter of their clinician. I would like them to understand that part two in the book is really tightly linked to what we say in the part one, which is the philosophy. And we do try to make it 
possible for people to understand by just using a lot of examples. And during the Core Self project, we also had a blog that is still up and running where many people in our network, they posted their reflections and ideas and experiences from their clinic. And we were very excited to be able to use uh, quotes from those blog posts, because it's not everything that people have published. It's not everything you get them to say officially when you ask them, but when they write these reflections um, Mm -hmm. in the blogs, they can be a bit more like, if only it was a bit more like this, or this is such a frustration, Mm. or we really need to see a change, you know? They can say something that they wouldn't normally uh, say in such plain words, and we were very happy to be able to to quote them on that. We did ask them, is it okay we, we, we cite you on this, or would you rather that no one really noticed, but they all uh, were happy to be cited. And, and I think when, when we link what we say philosophically to what they have experienced clinically, it's also much stronger, because then the philosophical ideas is also an answer to a real frustration or a real a real challenge in the clinic. For instance, that uh, you're not uh, given any time to actually talk to your patients in many <laughs> in many cases, or where, uh, for instance, the diagnosis, it has to fit something that is uh, accepted uh, to have a biomedical cause and to have a, a pharmacological intervention, for instance. So one of the psychotherapists, she... She, uh, she works on burnout and she says very often it's just translated into depression because it has a lot of the same symptoms and then you can give people antidepressants. But if you have burnout, then sometimes you get very bad uh, side effects and you get even more uh, fatigue <laughs> from, from those kinds of interventions. So, and uh, so we also have a general uh, practitioner who works with morbid obesity And he also says, when people are obese, what do we think? Well, we think they are obese because they eat too much. They eat more than what they uh, metabolize or more calories than they burn. So what can we do? Well, we ask them to lose weight. But he says, if you... (laughs) So he actually has time to talk to people before they go into surgery because they have maybe tried not to eat. It didn't work. So now they're going to uh, fix uh, by operating their whole... Uh, all the way and he says then they have to talk to him and then he learns a lot about their life a lot about what made them overeat what was the issue well maybe if before you had anorexia instead of uh, being obese then maybe stop to stop eating is not the best intervention for you maybe to deal with the issues that led you into these uh, eating disorders would be a better idea. And he says, well, the problem is that obesity hasn't been seen as a eating disorder. So you don't get help in psychiatry or from therapists because it's all about the symptom and it's all about the easy quick fix. And he says, but but other people might not overeat. They might use drugs, they might self-harm, they might, uh, you know, use alcohol. Uh, So, and he says, if we keep just focusing on the symptoms and getting rid of the symptoms and not the core cause of what happened to them leading up to this, then we are not really helping because yeah, you can also operate people, but then many of them also gain weight 
uh, again after because the problem is still there. It never it never disappeared. And have you um, engaging with these clinicians and practitioners in the book and through the whole course health kind of project? Have you ever thought, oh, I'd quite like to be a practitioner or a clinician, or are you quite happy being a philosopher? Or I would not have liked to be a clinician under those conditions that are given today. I have been shocked by what I hear from hospitals, uh, from any kind of healthcare where people say that you you are given so few resources to follow up individuals. And the general idea is that you treat people as averages. You know, even if you think something is not going to work for them, you still have to first try that because the evidence tells you that this is what you should do. This, uh, the whole idea of new public management where you get so and so much money to your department if you do this, you know, and uh, if you have a patient with this diagnosis, they are worth this much. You know, if they have this diagnosis, they're not worth very much, so no one wants them. I heard even the same from uh, pharmacy, from pharmacists that, uh, you know, no one wants those uh, heroin addicts who come with uh, methadone. But you want the people who have diabetic and needs insulin because that's really uh, expensive. So if everything is translated into money and time, so it should be cost and time efficient and you should do what works for most, even if you think based on your clinical opinion (laughs) that this is not the safest thing to do. Some people tell me, yeah, I can work as a clinician because I don't really do what I'm told. And if I did what I'm told, I would kill so many people. So sorry, it's just civilian disobedience. Um, So I I, I think, I mean, those sounds like extreme, extreme cases, but I've been places where we end up talking mainly about money and how money is allocated in the system. And I have been talking to people where we only talk about time and how they get two minutes for this, three minutes for that, five minutes if someone needs to be washed. And everyone gets the same independently of whether or not they need it. Then I talk to other people who are not clinicians who say it's extremely important that everyone gets the same and that's the most fair thing to do, you know? And it's a way to ensure that everyone gets, you know, really good evidence and a minimum, a very good minimum package of healthcare. But if you give the same package to everyone, independently of whether this suits them or fits their purpose, I, I would think that, well, you, you can harm quite a lot of people on the way. And now, for instance, in... Um, uh, in uh, in Norway, there's also this debate going on in uh, in in psychotherapy where people say that they don't they don't get the possibility to spend enough time uh, with the patient before they're out of the system. I mean, that was your 14 hours of session, and you don't get to tailor the kind of therapy you give to people that works for them because you have to give the same to everyone. And 
it's just uh, or even to get the best therapist for a particular individual because it's such an important such an important match when the therapist is actually the intervention <laughs> you know <laughs> so uh, and, and I think these frustrations they they come from the practitioners they come from the clinicians and and one thing we wanted to say in this book is that if you can understand where this scientific framework comes from that defines evidence and causal evidence in a very, very particular way, you know, and this shapes all of the things that you have to do and the, and your practice. If you knew where it came from and you had alternatives, then you would be able to engage in the debate and to take a critical part even in the defining of what does it mean to be evidence-based in your practice. So it gives you a tool to say, yeah, but actually I'm not a positivist. I don't believe in frequentist uh, theories. I don't believe that these statistical averages represent anyone. I mean, the average is averaging out. And here are the reasons why I don't think so. I mean, that could be a possibility. Or you could say, Actually, no, I am a reductionist. I do believe that it has to be all physical or else there's nothing. But I am aware that this is the bias. I'm aware of the criticism of it. And I have still chosen this position, you know. I just think this, uh, to, to be able to see when these people are against uh, using only RCTs, for instance, to, to find causal uh, efficacy, it's not because they are against evidence. It's because they have a different concept of causation. And that concept of causation might be implicit. It might not be something you have ever thought of, but it's like how you think. But since it's not explicit, it's a bit like what you feel, <laughs> which you can never be allowed to say and be scientific. And I think, yeah, I think when I said to you before that my experience with philosophy is that that you're able to kind of recognize your position and as your and your biases, and that your view is just kind of one of many potential views, if you like, or paradigms or epistemologies. And I was going to ask you what you hope for this book, but you've kind of eloquently described what you what you hope the book will do for clinicians, and that's to to begin to engage in this debate and at least recognize some of their tacit assumptions that they, they otherwise wouldn't have been aware of. Yeah, so one thing is to to understand where this scientific framework comes from. Because a lot of people, they say they are person-centered, but at the basis, there's always the evidence. But the evidence, I mean, what counts as evidence and what doesn't count as evidence is already defined by what people think causation and probability is. And if... Uh, if this is something that is actually up for debate, <laughs> then we should be allowed to take part of that debate. And um, I really think that by understanding your own position and the position that you are opposing, you also understand that there are rationalities for both. It's not just that yeah, I'm, a bit, I'm against science. I'm against. I'm against looking at these uh, this type of evidence because I want to just have opinions about my patient. I mean, to even call it expert opinion, I think it's so terrible. I mean, this is your expertise. If you think of evidence based 
uh, whatever. Today, it just means statistically generated evidence, which means that all of the theories, everything that you learned, it's like, yeah, you never needed it. All you needed was, um, you know, this, uh, this uh, statistical data and the fancy algorithm so that uh, the computer can spit out the diagnosis and, uh, and the best uh, treatment and the probability of it working. But I mean, that's not, that's not, I mean, what type of evidence is that? It's such a narrow idea of evidence. Yeah. And it, you know, Trisha Greenhall had her kind of real evidence-based movement or the EBM renaissance, which again, was it just coincidence that it coincided with cause health? It, you know, it's around the same time that, that you're obviously having this debate around causation and then EBP with people like Michael Lachlan have been talking about the nature of evidence and how EBM prioritizes certain types of knowledge over, over the other. It was, it seemed like it was a, just a, a coming together of two debates, if you like, around the same time or. Well, so going back to Thomas Kuhn and the paradigms, uh, he says that when people start engaging in philosophical debate, it's usually a, cri- a sign of crisis in the paradigm. And the evidence-based paradigm, I mean, it's not very old. It's from the early 90s. So a lot of the consequences that came from this paradigm has just started to appear in the last uh, decade or two decades. So it means that when people start seeing, well, the shortcomings of the paradigm, they start discussing and then the discussion become more and more foundational. It's, it's like when people started talking about dualism, you know, oh, but uh, you cannot separate mind and body in that way. I mean, it was just taken for granted before. So we didn't have, even have a name for it. I mean, there wasn't any point in knowing, <laughs> knowing about dualism when everyone agrees. It's just when people start disagreeing that the opposite, you know, the opposition, they have to, start targeting and saying, well, that's very reductionist. I don't think it's, I don't think it's correct that everything happens at the physiological level. Um, But if you all take it for granted, then there's no need for that type of reflection. So I think that all of these things come out now is just, uh, it's just showing that this, uh, on the one hand, the evidence-based paradigm is under is undergoing now a change. But what is typical for uh, a paradigm when it's in crisis is that it will try to absorb all the new knowledge and make it its own and translate it to its own. So what you can do with, for instance, person-centered medicine or person-centered practice is you can say, oh, person-centered, it means that we find the most relevant subgroup for you. And then we can use the Mm -hmm. same methods, you know? It's always going to be a problem because um, <laughs> it tries to fit it into the to the paradigm, right? So it just kind of takes the these new uh, kind of theories and just kind of tries to kind of force them into the existing paradigm. Yeah. So then you can use, I mean, you can use RCTs to look for the relevant dispositions of a subgroup, for instance. You, I mean, you you can do that, but you can also. Um, you can also do a bit like they did with the three bubbles where you have, okay, we keep the evidence as it is, 
<laughs> with RCTs on top and everything. And then you can add a bit of your judgment or opinion. And then we care about what the patient wants. But I don't understand exactly what the patient can say. I mean, is it whether you want a pill or a shot? I, I don't exactly understand. Is it if you're religious or not? I, I, I don't understand what it has to do with uh, causal evidence. I would say what you need to do is entirely change the way that you uh, define the evidence bubble. And the patient should be in there because the patient is most of the costly relevant mm. evidence that you need. And instead of having the clinical opinion or judgment, put the clinician in there because their knowledge is going to be crucial because that's where all of the theory is going to be. And then you can have, yeah, you can have some statistical evidence as well if you need it. But I mean. But it's a bit like the, bi- the, bi- the biopsychosocial model where you can trichotomize these biopsychosocial components yeah you can you can uh, that would also be a way to to revise the paradigm without changing it you know you can say well just remember you also include something from the mind as well as the body you know but if the methods don't change then you're stuck in the same way except that you say it's also okay that you have some mental component to it and some social component I'm looking at my red clock ticking and we're almost an hour and a half. Can you tell us where people can find you? Don't give your address away. <laughs> but on, on social media, and as I said, I'll, I'll link these in the show notes, but maybe just say if people obviously want to find out more where they can get the book and where they can interact or, or find out more about what you're doing. So the book is uh, published on Springer. So... It's just to, you can just Google Onium and Springer and uh, Rethinking Causality, Complexity and Evidence for the Unique Patient. So the book is available on the Springer webpage and you can download individual chapters or the whole book. We are on social media. So we have a Cause Health account on Twitter and we have a YouTube channel. We have a WordPress uh, page where we also have a blog. And I personally am also on uh, Twitter. I tweet as a philosopher and a bit uh, about my dog. And uh, Elena Rocca is also on Twitter. She doesn't tweet that much. (laughs) And apart from that, we have a lot of web pages. I have another blog about, Rani blogs about causation, etc. I haven't been so active on it, but it's there. We, we should be available. And um, as I said, all of that stuff will be put on the show notes so people can find it and link and find it. Rani, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's always so nice to be able to talk to the relevant target group for this project so we don't only have philosophers talking among themselves. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.